The teaching for this morning comes from Romans 3, 21 through 31. This is God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this will be our, our last week in the book of Romans uh, for a better part of, of the summer. Uh, if you are uh, visiting, what we've been doing is uh, we're working our way through the book of Genesis and through the book of Romans and um, taking sections at a time. And so first we did Genesis 1 through 11 and broke uh, at the end of chapter 11 before the story of Abraham and switched over and have been in Romans chapters 1 through 3. And today we come to the end of chapter 3 in Romans. And uh, what I want to talk to you about today is, is really the culmination of these opening chapters of this book. Uh, if, if Just to remind you, Romans is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote uh, in A.D. 56 to the church in Rome. And Paul had not visited this church or these Christians, and he'd never met them. And so he writes them this letter, and the theme of which is the good news, God's good news for the whole world. That's what this whole letter is about. And I want you to think for just a moment if you, how, how you like to watch movies. Uh, I, I was thinking about this this week. Why is it that we like to watch movies with the lights out? Have you ever been at someone's house or maybe watching a movie with your family and the lights are on and somebody's like, turn the lights off? Or if you ever go to a movie theater and for some reason the feature film starts and the lights are still on, I guarantee someone's getting up and they're walking out to get the lights turned off. And, and why, why is that? I think the reason that we like having the lights off is that that dark backdrop of darkness makes that those colors and that story and that movie all that much more dramatic and vivid and powerful. That's what Paul has been doing these first three chapters. Especially beginning chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Think of that as the dark backdrop. It's the bad news that we've been working our way through. And he begins with that in order to put in stark contrast 
to that bad news, the good news, that comes through in this, chap- in this passage this morning. And uh, as we take a look at it this morning, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a British pastor in the last century, uh, he actually preached nine sermons on this text. We're just doing one. And um, he said that it, this is one of the greatest and most important sections in the whole of Scripture. He said, all of our ideas of salvation must comply with this passage. That everything about the Christian gospel is found in this passage. And so, if you've been a Christian your whole life, or perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, this is it. These, 11, these 10, 11 verses are the heart of what people call in the church the good news. And it's important to, to, to recognize that right away, because the very first verse we come in contact with these two words, but now. Those two words, but now, are Paul's contrast to everything he's been saying before. And this but now marks the turning point of the gospel. If, if you uh, remember or you have a Bible with you, if you were to flip to chapter 1, verse 18, what we read there is that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. But when we come to chapter 3, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed. What we're being told here right at the very beginning is the righteousness of God is the answer to the wrath of God. And you have to have both to understand what Christianity is all about. It marks a turning point right here. This these two words, the but now. And it tells us that there is only one way of salvation. Paul has been showing that the human condition is helpless and hopeless, but now he tells us of the one way of salvation that alone can address the human condition. So these, these two words, but now, they mark this turning point, but they also they show us that this righteousness of God that's been manifested isn't anything new. When he says it's manifested apart from the law, that is the Old Testament, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this righteousness of God is, we're being told, is distinct from the law and the prophets. But it's not independent from the law and the prophets. It's all one story. And yet there's something unique and beautiful and new even about this righteousness that God has revealed. But I want to say one more thing before we we dive into the, the bulk of what we'll look at today about these two words at the very beginning of but now. I want you to realize or to think about these are the two most important words for the life of faith. They're incredibly practical and important in your daily life. Let let me try to show you what I mean. Think about when you come up against 
the lies of Satan, the lies of this world that would tell you that in order to be the man or woman or boy or girl that you need to be, that you must beat everybody else, make your own way, be the best, show yourself to be worthy of people's love and approval. Or what if you come in contact with, you're in your own life, you find yourself doubting, does God really love me? The answer to that is, well, but now, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Something new has happened. Or what when you come in, you face to face with your own weaknesses and failings, and you wonder, will I ever really change? Paul's answer to that is, but now, God's righteousness has been revealed. Everything is different for every single person who is in Christ. These words are really intended to be your ammunition against all of the things in your life from whatever direction they come that would attempt to lead you to despair or discouragement or hopelessness. And these two words introduce us to this way of salvation that is wrapped up in this phrase, the righteousness of God. And we're going to see this morning how Paul, he he essentially addresses two questions for us. How is this righteousness manifested? How does God reveal it? And second, what are its effects? What does it bring about? And so we just have two points this morning, the gift of God's righteousness and the fruit of God's righteousness. So first, let's look at the the gift of God's righteousness in verses 21 to 26. What is this righteousness that Paul is here talking about? I think we find the answer in verse 24. When, When Paul is saying, he says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by his grace as a gift. The righteousness that Paul is talking about here is free justification. What does that word mean, justification? Parents, I would tell you this is, if there's one thing I hope every one of our kids understands when they leave home, this is it. If there's one thing that I hope every one of us here understands... It is what this word means. That for Paul, justification, he's using a legal term. This comes from the courtroom. And it is a declaration. When Paul says that we are justified by grace, he is talking about something that God has declared to be true about you. If you are in Christ... He is not saying that, describing something that is true about you. He is telling you that free justification is God bestowing upon a sinner who is not righteous in in himself or in herself. He is giving you a righteous status. 
I, I, I'm, I know this, I'm getting kind of teachy, but you've got to hang with me. This is really important. Free justification in, in the scripture is God saying, I now view you as righteous in my sight. That I see you as I see my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And that is true no matter what filth you bring into this room, what sin you still know to be in your heart. There is a righteousness that God gives and declares to be true of every single person who trusts in Christ. And it is how God views you right now and forever. He views you as righteous in his sight. And this is much more than forgiveness. Free justification is not God saying simply, I forgive you, though that's true. It's much more beautiful and positive than that. Because you can be forgiven and still be condemned, declared unrighteous. God is saying, I forgive you for your rebellion and rejection of me. But there's more. I also give you a righteousness, a beauty, an acceptance that you could never earn on your own. That's free justification. But where is that found? Paul tells us in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Verse 24 are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This free justification is not just an idea out there floating around. It is found in a person. And Paul says it's found in Jesus Christ. And there are three words I want to highlight for you that help us to understand what this free justification means. What it means to say that it is found in Christ. The first word here we find in verse 24. And it is this word redemption. Now, this is one of those Christian words that gets thrown around all the time. So sometimes you might hear someone say, uh, that was a very redemptive moment. Or, um, we need to redeem this part of our city. Or, That was a redemptive relationship, something like that. It it, it gets used a lot. But what I want us to focus on here is what does Paul mean by this word redemption? Similarly, in the same way that he takes this word justification out of the courtroom, this word redemption is taken out of the marketplace, out of the business world. And it means the purchase of a release by means of the payment of of a ransom price. It means to buy something out of a situation that keeps it imprisoned or in bondage or enslaved. 
So, for example, in the Old Testament, this idea of redemption was used of slaves who were purchased in in order to be set free, and they were said to be redeemed. Even this is used of Israel, whom God redeemed from Egypt. And here, what we're being told is that Jesus Christ is the redemption. He is our redemption. He is the payment. He is the ransom sum to buy us out of the guilt and bondage of the human condition of living in rebellion against God. And Jesus even says this about himself in Mark chapter 10 when he says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And John in chapter 3, he describes in the perhaps most famous verse in all of the Bible that God so loved the world that what he gave, his only son, to be what? To be your redemption price. To pay your debt. See, redemption, what does it show us? This work shows us the costliness of grace on the one hand and the seriousness of sin on the other. Jesus is the cost of your free justification. Our sin and rebellion is so tragic and awful that nothing less than God's own son could deal with that problem. So that's the first word, redemption. The second word we see here in verse 25, this redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Try and say that one three or four times really fast. Propitiation. Now, some of you might have some awareness about this word. There's a lot of debate about this word. Uh, some would suggest it means something other than what I'm going to tell you, and um, I'm happy to have conversations about that. But this word propitiation is one we can never do away with and still be Christians. Why is that? This word propitiation means to appease or to pacify or to exhaust. And in particular, to exhaust God's wrath against sin. To appease God's wrath against sin. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus appeases God's wrath. He exhausts God's wrath. Propitiation could just as easily be translated here as sacrificial death. One writer puts it like this. The very God whom we offended has himself provided the way whereby the offense has been dealt with. His anger, his wrath against sin and the sinner has been satisfied. Now, I don't know how that strikes you to say that The wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus that you deserve, that I deserve. And it has been exhausted. It has been pacified. Think about that for a moment. What that means is, for God to be God, 
He can no longer have wrath towards you if you are in Christ. That's what Paul says later. There is now therefore no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no wrath left for you to bear because Jesus has borne it. This means no matter what you think or how you feel, to be in Christ means that you now forever experience God's welcome and fatherly love. Why? Because there's no wrath left. Jesus has borne it for you. Redemption, propitiation, but then the one last word here, blood. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, why, why does Paul say by his blood and not by his death? They mean the same thing. But Paul chooses to use this word by his blood. And it's actually, in many ways, a reference back to verse 21. Remember what he says, that this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does he mean? What, what is he talking about? Believe it or not, the fact that he uses by his blood helps us understand what he means. Because Paul is using here Old Testament sacrificial language. Think about the story of the, of the Exodus. The night when... God brings his people out of Egypt. What does he have them do? It's the first Passover. And he directs his people to take a lamb and to kill this lamb and to spread the blood of this lamb over their doorframe. And so that when the angel of death passes over Egypt, they would be spared. What does that tell you? That this blood shed covers God's people, saves his people, rescues his people from judgment. And in fact, Paul calls Jesus Christ our Passover lamb. And John the Baptist in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus coming, says, Behold, this is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Redemption, propitiation, and blood. Jesus is our substitute. That's what we're being told here. That this free justification, this righteousness that's been revealed, that is found in Jesus, these three words help us to see how how can we have this free justification? What does it mean? How is it possible? It means that Jesus has paid what we can't pay. He is our redemption. It means that he exhausts the wrath that we deserve. He is our propitiation. And it means that he gives his life for ours. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed so that you might live. Now, there are three very important questions that come from these three words. And what Paul is teaching us here about the gift of God's righteousness. The first is, 
How does this become yours? How does this righteousness become mine? And the answer is, is very simple and clear. Paul teaches us that it is through faith. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, again, this is another word that I think it gets very familiar. Uh, but I, you need to understand... According to the Bible, there, there, there are three ingredients to faith. There's knowledge. You need to know what the Christian gospel is. There is assent. It's not enough to just know it, to know about Jesus, who he was, that he lived, what he did. You need to agree that it's true. That what he came to do isn't a fable, isn't made up. But it actually is the turning point of world history. But third, not just that you agree with it, but that you come to trust in him. That you come to believe that it's true for you personally. One writer puts it like this, the person who has faith is the person who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. So how does this righteousness become yours? By abandoning all trust in yourself and placing all of it in Jesus. Well, second, who is this free justification for? Look at verse 22 again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 23. For all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is really important. This free justification is for anyone who would trust in Jesus. There is no distinction, Paul says, in the end of verse 22. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. This is a radically inclusive message. There is no qualification to get in. Or to put it another way, the only qualification you need to get in is to admit you have none. There is no system of thought. There is no word religion that is as open and inclusive as this message of good news. Because it says everyone is in the same position. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's all of those people that this good news is for through faith in Christ as a free gift. And what does it teach us about God? Look in verse 25 and 26. The cross of Jesus, this work of Jesus, shows us two things about 
about God. Verse 25, who put God forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. The second part there, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. And it shows us two things about God's character. Verse 25 shows us that he's patient. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You might wonder, well, if God doesn't punish sin right away, how will I know that he will? Maybe he's just picking and choosing what he wants to call to account and what he doesn't. And what Paul is saying, no, 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 the cross of Jesus shows us God's patience with sinners. But it also shows us his character. Verse 26 shows us that right now, at the present time, how he can be both just and the justifier. How can God remain just and justify you at the very same time? The only way that's possible for God to be just and the justifier is if his justice, his righteousness, his holiness is satisfied on the cross. And it's at the very same time that the cross of Jesus, his righteousness, becomes your justification. All of that, we could say, is the gift of God's righteousness. Well, what does that righteousness lead to? Let me show you real briefly as we come to a close in verses 27 to to 31. What are the effects of this gift of God's righteousness? You could even think of these as, as three tests for yourself. How are you grasping the gospel? How deeply is it going into your heart and life? First of all, notice what happens, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Paul says it's excluded. Think about in your own life. Here what Paul is telling us is that the life of faith functions on a totally different plane, totally different principle, a totally different understanding of who you are and who God is. When he says here, it is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Here, this, the term law really serves as, a, it really means principle. A whole different basis for living. So instead of your life being about works, your efforts, your performance, it is now about faith. It's about Christ's performance, his obedience. And think about this for a moment. I want you to think about, do do you see a law of performance in your life? Do you see even the twinges of boasting in your life? Maybe ways that you would never say out loud. How do you begin to unravel that? I just want to give you, or how do you begin to beat that, that tendency? And this is just one thing to look for. Can you laugh at yourself? 
Are you able to laugh at yourself? One of the best ways to begin to chip away at pride and self-righteousness and boasting is to practice laughing at yourself more. And why is that? Well, because what Paul is telling us is that you are far more sinful than you're aware of. And at the very same time, you are far more loved than you could imagine. And it's only the gospel that can enable you to laugh at yourself and not despair when you see what you're really like. But secondly, notice in verse 29 to 30 how the gospel breaks down all barriers. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. You know, we live in a city that is just riddled with division and painful stories of of history. And there's always discussions and conversations and attempts to try to mend those wounds. And that's all very good. But it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can take the self-righteousness out of the human heart from which racism and oppression come. That's what Paul is telling us here. The gospel alone has the power to remove all sense of superiority over other people. And in in its place to put humility and generosity and kindness and understanding. And lastly here, in verse 31, this free justification, Paul says, if it's all this free and it's this good, Does this mean that God's law is irrelevant? And he says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, why does he say that? He'll get to this more later in in the rest of the book of Romans. But what he has in view here is remember that the law and the prophets bear witness to this Jesus, to this righteousness. And what he's telling us is that if you want to really understand the gospel and what the cross of Jesus means... You have to hold on to the law of God, all that he has said. Because the law of God is not some abstract set of moral principles. It is God's revelation of his character, of what he most loves. And so to be owned and known by God's free gift of grace means you you become a person who loves what he loves. This fruit of God's righteousness, it changes your view of yourself, of other people, and of God. Now, remember where we began with those two words, but now. Think about that. What parts of this passage are resonating with you that make those two words, but now, beautiful to you? You see, this passage, I hope you're beginning to see, is actually crucial for us to, to swim in, to sit in, to marinate in, to let it wash over you. Because it is Paul's summary and his answer to the bad news. The wrath of God revealed is answered with the righteousness of God revealed as a gift of free grace 
and receive by faith alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage and the ways in which you, through your servants, reveal your righteousness, reveal the good news found in Jesus and him alone. Father, this is a deep and rich passage. And we ask that you would work by your spirit to teach us. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would take these words of the scriptures and drive them deep into our hearts and lives, that we would know the joy of your free grace, that we would be melted at looking at Jesus, our redemption and our propitiation and his bloodshed in our place. And Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, change us from the inside out and make us people who love you and love our neighbors. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.